Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians is a book all about authentic Christianity. So it shouldn't surprise us when Paul gets to the end of this book in chapter 13 and verse 5, and he really asks the question, are you authentic? Are you real? Are you a genuine believer? And in this verse he says, test yourself, examine yourself, see if Jesus is really in you, unless you've flunked the test. Now why does Paul do this? Well, he does it because there are plenty of people who say they're in the faith, and they're not. There are plenty of people who say Jesus is in them, and he's not. And so Paul says, make sure you're real. Now I noticed it falls in a context, because if you go back a page to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, in verses 2 and 3, Paul said, you're like the bride of Christ, and I'm the one who shared the gospel with you. And so I am like the father of the bride. I have walked you down the aisle of the church, and I have given you away as my daughter to your new husband. And Paul says, I fear for you. Why? I fear for you that you're not going to be a pure bride to your husband. I fear for you that you're not going to be devoted to your husband. Now what do you call a wife who's not pure? What do you call a wife who's not devoted to her husband? An adulterer. Or to use a more explicit biblical term, a harlot. A whore. Did you know God uses that word a lot? Throughout the Old Testament, He speaks of Israel as whoring after other gods. Whoring after idols. In Revelation chapter 17, He talks about the great whore. Who is the great whore? That's the whole false system of religion that Satan has set up as counterfeit to the true faith. So the analogy in Scripture is the bride and the whore. And guess what? You're one or the other. Now I say that to introduce a song. Because it's R-rated. And I've asked Ryan to sing it. You won't hear it on your local Christian radio station. But I want you to listen to the words. And I want you to prepare your heart for our message today as you do so. If you can love me as a wife And for my wedding gift, your life. 
Should that be all I'll ever need? Or is there more I'm looking for? And should I read between the lines? And look for blessings in disguise To make me handsome, rich and wise Is that really what you want? Cause I am a whore, I do confess I put you on just like a wedding dress And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle I'm a prodigal with no way home I put you on just like a ring of gold And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle to you So could you love this bastard child? Though I don't trust you to provide With one hand in a pot of gold And with the other in your side Oh, cause I am so easily satisfied by the call of lovers so less wild That I would take a little cash Over your very flesh and blood Cause I am a whore, I do confess I put you on just like a wedding dress And I run down the aisle I run down the aisle And I'm a prodigal with no way home I put you on just like a ring of gold And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle to you Oh, cause money cannot buy a husband jealous I When you have knowingly Deceived his wife So I am a whore, I do confess I put you on just like a wedding dress And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle And I'm a prodigal with no way home I put you on just like a ring of gold And I run down the aisle Run down the aisle Oh, I am a whore, I do confess I put you on just like a wedding dress And I run down the aisle I run down the aisle And I'm a prodigal with no way home I put you on just like a ring of gold And I run down the aisle I run down the aisle to you
to you postmodern culture when the mentality is if you say you know truth you're arrogant and in our politically correct environment where if you confront somebody you're insensitive you don't hear many songs when somebody says sing along with me I am a whore or you don't Hear many preachers like Paul say, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. In fact, in our day, most of the people we call leaders are really followers. Politicians take polls to see what people think, and then they do what people think. Musicians find out what's selling, and then they duplicate it. Even entertainers listen to what people applaud to the most. And that's what they do. And unfortunately today, many preachers fall into that same category. They put their finger in the air and see which way the wind of popular opinion is blowing. And then they put up their sail. Now I'm all for changing methods. And I'm all for changing your approach when you talk to people. We're going to go into the book of John as our next book. When you get to chapter 3, you see Jesus dealing with a religious guy, Nicodemus. You get to chapter 4, he's dealing with a sinful woman who's been married seven times and is living out of marriage. And you'll see he deals with those people differently. But when it comes to the message of the gospel, it never changes. It never changes. And yet as you listen to what's being called the gospel today, there are many people changing the message to try to appeal to people. They don't want to talk about sin because that's negative. They don't want to talk about hell because that's controversial. They don't want to talk about the cross because that's offensive. And so what you have today is Jesus being presented as your friend. He's your friend. He'll add zeal to your life, zest, pizzazz. He'll keep you from being lonely. He'll make you happy. He'll compliment your endeavors. It's reflected in the bumper sticker that says, Try Jesus. Like He's some kind of cold syrup. Try Jesus like he's a magazine subscription. Try Jesus like you get a 30-day money-back guarantee. Let me tell you something. The central message of the Gospel is not that Jesus is your friend, though he is. The central message of the Gospel is not that Jesus will make you happy, though he will. 
the central message of the gospel is not that Jesus will fulfill your life, although he will. The central message of the gospel is the cross of Calvary, where the Lord of glory took your place, where he died the death that you deserve, where he took all the punishment for all your sin forever, and he paid for it on the cross. And when I come to Jesus, I come to the cross, where by faith I identify with him in such a way that I die to self in order to experience his life. That's why it's called the new birth. Because it gets rid of the old life and introduces me to an altogether new life. So I don't try Jesus to see whether he fits into my life. Because guess what? He will never fit into your life. What I have to do is die to my life so that I can fit into his. I don't try Jesus. I come humbly before him and I surrender my will so that I can do his will. I come to Jesus and I die to my life so that I can experience his life. So as we talk about examining ourselves, one of the evidences of genuine conversion is a broken will. It's a surrendered will. If you can't say, I am a whore, then you don't understand grace. And if you don't see in your life a brokenness, a surrendered will to Jesus Christ, then it creates a big question mark about the authenticity of your faith. Now, unfortunately, we try to sidestep that today. And I hear a lot of terminology that does that. We, we say things like, I accepted Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. Makes for a great testimony. But it's not really biblical. You see, Jesus is Lord. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And if you invite him into your life, he doesn't come as somebody else. He comes as who he is. And he is Lord. In his book entitled, I Call It Heresy, A.W. Tozer writes this, To urge men and women to believe in a divided Christ is bad teaching. For no one can receive half of Christ or a third of Christ or a quarter of the person of Christ. We are not saved by believing in an office or in a work. We are saved by believing in a person. Jesus Christ and he is Lord. One of our most commonly used salvation verses is Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. What do you confess when you're saved? You confess that Jesus is Lord. 
Romans 14.9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He is Lord of all. In fact, while we're picking on terminology, even the idea of saying that I made Jesus Lord is not biblical. Because you can't make Jesus Lord. Acts 2.36 says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see, I don't make Jesus Lord. God made him Lord. I simply surrender to his lordship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, it says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So what is the message that comes out of my lips to show that I possess the Spirit of God? It is Jesus is Lord. Now, obviously, he doesn't just mean enunciating those words because anybody can say those words. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And I will say to them, I never knew you. You see, the idea behind 1 Corinthians 12, 3 is more than just saying the words. It's acknowledging him as Lord and surrendering my will to his lordship. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. How do you do the will of the Father? Well, how do you do anybody's will? You surrender your will to their will. You surrender your will to Jesus' will, and guess what? You're doing the will of the Father. You say, time out, Dan. This sounds like you're adding works to salvation. Well, let me correct that idea. Because if you listen carefully in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's his work in me that allows me to say those words. It's his work in me that breaks my will and causes me to bow the knee and surrender my will to Jesus Christ. Just as we saw last week, that it is God who grants repentance. It is God who breaks me and causes me to bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9. Therefore, also God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's like the old commercial, pay me now or pay me later. You're going to bow now and if you don't, 
you're going to bow later. You're going to bow in salvation or you're going to bow in judgment. And yet I hear people say, well, well, you can be saved and not bow. You, You can be saved and not acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so our message needs to be, bow now. Did you know that the word Lord is used 747 times in the New Testament alone? 747. Lord, Lord, Lord. Jesus is Lord. And those who come to Him in genuine faith come with a surrendered will. And I think if you look at the Gospels, you're going to find that Jesus expected this. You could never accuse Jesus of watering down the message. You could never accuse Jesus of sneaking up on people and hoping they would sign on the dotted line before they realized what the fine print said. In fact, look at Luke chapter 14 with me. Luke chapter 14, verse 28. Jesus says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What's Jesus saying? Better count the cost going to build a tower, you better make sure you got the money to finish it. There used to be a house across the street here. I, I would look out my office window every day. They started to build a house, they laid the foundation, put the walls up, and they stopped. Ran out of money. It sat there for over two years. Every time I looked out my office window, I saw an example of somebody who didn't count the cost. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you better count the cost. John Stott comments comments on this passage in Basic Christianity and says this, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warnings and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder 
the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Jesus is not interested in half-built towers. Jesus is not recruiting soldiers who are going to march out to war and then retreat at the first sign of conflict. In fact, if you turn over a few pages to Luke chapter 9, right at the end of that chapter, Jesus is walking along and he encounters three men. In verse 57, a guy speaks up out of the crowd and says, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, if we found that guy today, we would put him in ministry. You'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. You're the guy. What did Jesus say? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Before you follow me, you better know that I don't even have a home. So you better count the cost. Then in verse 59, he says to another guy, follow me. And the guy says, first let me go bury my dad. Now what is first? It's a priority word. Jesus doesn't like to be second to anybody. First let me go bury my dad. Now the the truth of this passage is his dad's not dead. If his dad was dead, he wouldn't be hanging around on the road. He wants to go home until his dad dies, get the inheritance, and then come follow Jesus with his hands full. When Jesus has no home, he can stay at the Ramada Inn. First, let me go bury my dad. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Count the cost. And then verse 61, I will follow you, but first. There it is again. First, let me go home and say goodbye to everybody. And Jesus says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. What's he saying? Better count the cost. When I sit down with premarital counseling, the very first thing I say to the couple is this. I say, we're going to go through premarital counseling And my whole goal in the counseling is, I'm going to try to talk you out of it. Because if I can talk you out of getting married, then you're not ready to get married. Jesus is the groom. He's counseling with us, the bride, and he uses the same philosophy. I'm going to talk you out of this, because if I can talk you out of this, you're not ready to be my bride. In John chapter 6, Jesus' words were so challenging that in verse 66 we read this, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Wow. Now, you know, these these tough words of Jesus, the, the way I was taught was that when I would come across a tough verse like this and I would ask somebody, well, what? What's that mean? They would say, well, there are two kinds of verses in the Gospels. There are salvation verses and there are discipleship verses. 
You've got these two piles. So if you find a challenging verse, just put it in the discipleship pile, and it doesn't apply to you. You know, that's for missionaries and pastors and really, you know, committed people. So you got your two piles. But you know, as I studied Scripture and was honest with Scripture, I don't see those two piles. In fact, take your Bible with me and look at Acts chapter 6, for example. Acts chapter 6. It says, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number. Who are the disciples? The 12 disciples? No. They're increasing in number. Who are these disciples? Look at verse 2. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples, or literally the multitude of the disciples. Verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Who are the disciples? They're everybody in the church. In fact, look at chapter 11 of Acts and verse 26. Look at the last phrase of that verse. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We think, okay, you become a Christian, then later you work your way up to disciple. What was the name for everybody prior to this chapter? Disciples. And then they later called them Christians, so a disciple is a Christian, and a Christian is a disciple, so if you're a Christian, you're a disciple. There's no distinction between those words. That's why Jesus said in his great commission in Matthew 28, go and make what? Disciples. Because they're all the same. In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 14, and I know I'm wearing you out, but in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus talks about counting the cost, you know who he's talking to? Luke chapter 14. And verse 25, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, count the cost. Is he talking to the disciples? No. He's talking to the multitudes. You say, well, what is the cost? What is the cost? Well, just in this context, let me show you what Jesus says. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty costly. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he talks about counting the cost, and then he comes back in verse 33 and says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. 
Jesus is saying when it comes to relationships, I'm first. When it comes to your responsibility, take up your cross, I'm first. When it comes to your resources, I'm first. Now, is this optional? Jesus says if you don't do it, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. You say, well, I I think that's too much to ask. I think that's too much commitment. Who would ever do this? Well, you know what? People are lining up to do this every day. Because I have people come to me and say, would you marry me? And I bring them into my office and I explain what marriage is. And on the wedding day, they make vows to each other. And you know what you say to your spouse on your wedding day? You say, you're first before my father, my mother, my brother, my sister. I am forsaking all others to commit myself to you. Relationships. You say to your spouse, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Now, do you do it perfectly? I don't. But you make that commitment. I'm laying down my life for you, my responsibility. And you say to your spouse, my possessions are all yours, my resources. Happens every day. Most of you in here have made that commitment to somebody else. Jesus is asking for that same commitment. You see, Jesus didn't come to have a casual, buddy-buddy relationship with you. Jesus didn't come to have a dating relationship with you. Jesus came to have a marriage relationship with you. And when you think about the cross of Calvary, guess what? That's when he was saying his vow. That's when he was vowing his life to you. Jesus said, I do, on the cross of Calvary. And he is waiting for us to respond. He's waiting for us to say, I do, to Jesus Christ. Now, what is your response? You say, well, I, I wave to Jesus once in a while. Kind of like the neighbor that I don't even really know his name. I wave at him in the neighborhood. I wave at Jesus once in a while. I say nice things about Jesus once in a while, especially when I go to like a conference or get convicted and I, I say nice things about him, kind of like the... You guys, sometimes I ask you, when's, when's the last time you sent your wife a card, and you say, ooh, I don't remember. And even when you do write a card, it's always, I know I haven't said this much, but I love you. How do you respond to Jesus? You say, I go out with him once a week on Sunday morning.
I hope you're going to know the answer to this, but what do you call a wife who goes out with her husband once a week? What do you call a wife who dates her husband once a week and runs around the rest of the time? I'll help you. It's a whore. See, real faith is evidenced by a surrendered will. So as the praise team comes back, let me ask you some questions that I want you to think about as we close our service. Have you said, I do, to Jesus Christ? Have you vowed your resources, your life? Have you said, I'm going to pick up my cross? What do you do on a cross? You die. I am dying to self. I am rejecting everybody else and everything else and putting you first in my life. Have you done that? Have you said those vows to Jesus Christ? And then if so, are you keeping your wedding vows? Are you a faithful bride? Is your will clearly broken and surrendered to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? I'm going to ask you to answer those questions to the one who needs to know the answer, Jesus Christ, as we close our service.